ಓಂ ನಮೋ ಭಗವತೆ ಶ್ರೀ ಅರುಣಾಚಲರಮನಾಯ ನಮಸ್ಕಾರ ಟುಡೇ ಐಮ್ ಗೋಯಿಂಗ್ ಟು ಬಿ ಟೋಕಿಂಗ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ವರ್ಸ್ ಟೆನ್ ಆಫ್ ಉಲುದು ನಾಪಡು ಲಾಸ್ಟ್ ಟೈಮ್ ವಿ ಟೋಕ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ವರ್ಸ್ ನೈನ್ ಇನ್ ವಿಚ್ ಭಗವಾನ್ ಸ್ಪೋಕ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ಡಯಾಡ್ಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಟ್ರಯಾಡ್ಸ್ ಇನ್ ದಿಸ್ ಕಾಂಟೆಕ್ಸ್ಟ್ ಡಯಾಡ್ಸ್ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ ಪೇರ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಆಪೋಸಿಟ್ಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಟ್ರಯಾಡ್ಸ್ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ the three factors of uh, any uh, knowledge of anything other than ourselves that is the knower the thing known and the means of knowing it so um of, of the dyads the pairs of opposites one of the most basic dyads is knowledge and ignorance um so that is the that is what bhagavan talks about this in this and the next few verses um what he says in this verse is oh just to just to as a reminder what he says in the previous verses is that dyads and triads that is these pairs of opposites and these um the knower knowing and things known they exist always holding one thing that one thing as bhagavan explained is ego which is the knower it's one of the three of uh, one of the three members of the triad and um because why why exist holding means they depend upon for their semi existence why because all dyads and triads seem to exist only in the view of ego it's only in the view of ego that there are um uh, pairs of opposites such as uh, existence and non existence life and death awareness and non awareness knowledge and ignorance happiness and unhappiness good and bad liberation and bondage all these pairs of opposites exist only in the view of ego likewise the whole the, the triad the of of knower uh, a thing known and the and the means of knowing it all these also depend upon the knower that is without without but uh, a means of knowing there could be nothing known so everything that is known depends upon the means of knowing it and there could be neither anything known nor any means of knowing it if there were not a knower so the knower is fundamental the knower is ego but in other words the subject is ego that which knows all other things so it since everything else exists only in the view of ego they depend for their semi existence upon ego that is the implication of bhagavan what bhagavan means when he says dyads and triads exist always holding or depending on one thing and then he goes on to say if one sees within the mind what that one thing is they will slip off why is this because we seem to be ego the knower so long as our attention is going outwards towards things other than ourselves if we turn our attention back towards ourselves to see who am i there actually no such thing as ego at all uh, so when we look for it as he says in verse 25 tadinal otompidicum if we try to if ego tries to see itself instead of constantly looking at other things if it tries to see itself it will subside and dissolve back into its source since everything else but dyads and triads depend upon ego when die when ego subsides the dyads and triads also slip off so that the dyads and triads exist only when we allow our attention to go outwards when we allow our attention to go outwards we rise we thereby rise as ego when we turn our attention back within we thereby subside back into our source 
Um, and then he says, only those who have seen have seen the reality. That means only those who have seen the, the cessation of ego and everything that depends on the ego are those who have seen the reality. Um, they will not be confused. That is, so long as we're looking outwards, we're confused by this illusory appearance of dyads and triads, of multiplicity and so on. When we see ourselves as we actually are, which is what Bhagavan means by seeing the reality, when we know ourselves as we actually are, when we are aware of ourselves as we actually are, we will see that we alone exist. In the state of oneness, there's no room for any confusion. Only when there's multiplicity, or at least more than one, there's scope for confusion. When there's only one, it's a state of perfect clarity. That is our real nature. That is the state devoid of confusion. So that's what he said in the previous verse. So as I say, in this verse, he takes up one of the most fundamental um, uh, dyads and the di well, pairs of opposites, which is, and it's the pair of opposite which is directly related to the triads, to the three, to the three puti, the three factors of um, of knower, uh, knowing and known, um, and that uh, that basic uh, um, uh, pair of opposite is knowledge and ignorance. So that's what he's going to talk about from here onwards. These verses. Uh, 10, 11, 12, and 13 are extremely important because nowadays um, everyone um, everyone with a with a half-baked understanding of um, of Advaita or spirituality in general talks about awareness. But what they what most people fail to uh, recognize is that what we generally take to be awareness, which means awareness of things other than ourselves, is not actually real awareness. It is only ignorance. Real awareness is the awareness that is aware only of its own existence. Why is this? Because nothing other than ourselves actually exists. We alone are what actually exists. So knowing anything other than ourselves is knowing something that doesn't exist, as if it were existing. Now, for example, we know this world as if it's existing, but it doesn't actually exist. Just like the, the world we see in a dream, it, it seems to exist in our view. But when we wake up from dream, we recognize, oh, there was no such world. It was just a, a mental fabrication. Likewise, this present world is just a mental fabrication. Everything other than ourselves is just a product of the mind, a fabrication of the mind. So knowing other things is not real knowledge, is not real awareness. Real awareness is only is knowing ourself and ourself alone. In other words, being aware of nothing other than ourself, that is real awareness, that is pure awareness. So this is the main idea running through these next few verses. So what he says in verse uh, 10, he first um establishes dyads and uh, sorry knowledge and ignorance as a dyad as a pair of opposites one um feature of any pair of opposites is that each has a meaning or has a, each exists dependent on the other um when for example if we talk about um existence and non-existence each has a meaning relative to the other 
that's in, in in terms of when we it's not talking about the absolute existence, the relative existence, the, the existence for which there's an opposite, the existence of things other than ourselves. Or any pair of opposites, even a more mundane pair of opposites, tall or short. That is, what is tall? You you that is tall and short are relative to each other. Um a person of more than um two meters height is tall. Um relative to most other people who are shorter than that. But compared to, say, um, the Empire State Building, that person is very short. The Empire State Building is much taller. So all, all pairs of opposites are relative to each other. Each has a meaning in relation to the other. Um, so Bhagavan, first, this is the first thing Bhagavan says here about this basic... Um, uh, dyad, this basic pair of opposite knowledge and ignorance. What he says is, um, Ariyame Vittu, Arivu Indram. Ariyame Vittu literally means leaving uh, ignorance. Here, leaving Vittu is used in the sense of without. So, without ignorance, knowledge does not exist. Arivu Indram, that means knowledge does not exist. And then he said the, the converse. Uh, leaving um, knowledge, in other words, without knowledge, that ignorance does not exist. So, in other words, there's no knowledge without ignorance and no ignorance without knowledge. What, are, what, what type of knowledge and ignorance is he talking about here? He's talking about knowledge or ignorance of things other than ourselves. Um, because there's, there, though we... With regard to ourself, we we talk of ignorance, self-ignorance. That is, uh, agnana or or um, avidya. That is generally taken to mean ignorance of ourself, but that, strictly speaking, is not ignorance of ourself. There is never a moment when we do not know ourselves. We always know our own existence. I am. What is called self-ignorance is not actually ignorance of ourselves, it is a wrong knowledge of ourselves. That is, we are ignorant of our true identity because we take ourselves to be something other than what we actually are. Um, so when we rise as ego, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, I am this person, I am uh, I am Michael, I am whoever, what, whatever the, the, the name of this person, we, we identify with that, the name and form of this person, this body. That is ignorance in the sense that it is a wrong knowledge. Instead of being aware of ourselves as we actually are, we're aware of ourselves as something other than what we actually are. But that is not the ignorance Bhagavan is talking about here. The ignorance he's talking about here, as a pair of opposites, is knowledge and ignorance about things other than ourselves. So, um, Without ignorance, knowledge does not exist, and without knowledge, that ignorance does not exist. Why is this the case? Um, when we come to all, all things, all our knowledge of other things is not permanent. There's nothing that we have known for all eternity, nothing other than ourselves, but we have known for all eternity. Whatever we know, we come to know. When we only when we come to know something does our prior ignorance of it come into existence. Why is this? Because 
nothing exists independent of our knowledge of it. So, for example, um, the, we may um, learn in the history books that from um, 1914 to 1918, there was a great war in Europe. Um, we haven't known this always. We, at some time when we were studying history at school, we came to know about this, or we may have had relatives who fought in the war. So somehow we came to know about this. Before we knew about this, that First World War didn't actually exist, because it exists only in our mind, only in our view. So only when we come to know it, does our prior ignorance of it come into existence. Um, and, and whatever we, so th there cannot be any knowledge of a thing without a prior ignorance of it, but that prior ignorance itself, uh, um, so without a, a prior ignorance, knowledge doesn't exist. But it's also equally true to say without the knowledge, the prior ignorance doesn't exist. Not only is there a prior ignorance, there's a future ignorance, because whatever we know now, one day we're going to forget. When, the, when this body dies, we'll forget. We During this lifetime, we've learned so many things. The mass knows so many knowledge. We may be very learned, have so many facts at our fingertips. We may have studied so much. We have may have so many PhDs and uh, postdoctoral degrees, all sorts of things we may have. This all represents the knowledge we've acquired in this life. Whatever knowledge we acquire in this life, when this body dies, it's all going to go. We don't even have to wait till this body dies. Every night when we fall asleep, all that we know becomes non-existent during our sleep. But as soon as we wake up, um, it all comes back again, or it all, seem, it all reappears. So uh, knowledge and ignorance of things other than ourselves, they depend upon each other. There's no knowledge of anything other than ourselves without a prior and future ignorance of that thing. And there's no prior or future ignorance of a thing without a present knowledge of it. If we don't know it, we don't know that we are ignorant of it. And there's no such thing of ignorance. Before we know something, the ignorance of that thing doesn't exist, because that thing itself doesn't exist until we know it. Um, so this is a very, very, um, very, very, though it sounds very simple, Without ignorance, knowledge doesn't exist. Without knowledge, that ignorance doesn't exist. This sounds very simple, but if we think deeply about it, it has a very deep, um, uh, a very deep meaning. <clears throat> um, so that's the first two sentences. But then the most important part of the, this um, of this uh, verse is the third and last sentence of the verse, what Bhagavan says in, the, in this sentence is, um, under arivum ariyameyum aku endru amudalam tanne ariyum aribe aribu. What that means is, um, only that knowledge that knows oneself, who is the first, as to whom are knowledge and, uh, to whom are that knowledge and ignorance is knowledge. Um, so what does this mean? Uh, one thing to understand here, but Tamil word Aribu, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a verbal noun. That is the noun, the, ver, the original verb is Ari. Ari means to know or to be aware. 
So Aribu means knowledge or awareness. In, in English, when we talk about knowledge, we're talking about what we know, the information we know. So um, it's difficult to translate Aribu because Bhagavan is sometimes using it in the sense of, of knowledge in that sense, and sometimes he's using it in the sense of, um, of awareness. So we, we, we have to be a little careful when we, we, we have to understand, but in some context, knowledge means not what is known, but the knower of that, or that which knows. Um, so uh, when he says, only that knowledge but knows oneself, here knowledge means awareness. Only that awareness but knows oneself. Uh, uh, that is, tane arium arive. That is the main clause of this sentence is, uh, well, the, strictly speaking, the main clause is arive arivu. Uh, knowledge alone is knowledge, or awareness alone is awareness. But what type of awareness is he talking about? Tane arium arivu. Only the awareness but knows oneself is awareness. That is, the real awareness is not awareness of things other than ourself, but only awareness of ourself. But he says more than that. He, he, that tanne, tanne means oneself. In this context, that, that is super, if we just take this, the, these last four words, tanne arium aribe, uh, uh, aribu, uh, only the awareness but knows or is aware of oneself is aware is awareness means implies is real awareness if we take it like that if we just take that in isolation that suggests that tane is referring to our real nature but actually it's a it's a little bit more we we need to pay very close attention to what bhagavan is saying not to get confused actually that tane is referring to ego when he says tane arivum arive he means the, the knowledge but knows the reality of ego, not the knowledge but knows ego, because when we know the, the reality of ego, when we know what ego actually is, it's no longer ego, but just the pure awareness that we actually are. So we need to be a little, we, we need to understand, Bhagavan packs a lot of meaning into a few words, so we need to, we need to go beneath the surface of the words to understand what Bhagavan is talking about. So, about this tanne, what he says is, first he says, Ammudalam tanne. Uh, 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 that means uh, uh, oneself who is the, the first. What does he mean by the first here? He means it's ego is the first to appear. The first thing to rise is ego. Only after ego rises, everything else rises, because everything else rises, everything else exists only in ego's view. So without ego, there's no knowledge or ignorance about anything other than ourself. There's nothing other than ourself to, for us either to know or not to know without ego. So ego is the first in that sense. And, um, and uh, he also says there, under Ari, he begins the sentence saying, under Arivum Ariyameum Aku Indru. That means, uh, to whom are that uh, knowledge and ignorance? That, that knowledge and ignorance means the knowledge and ignorance of things other than ourselves. Indru is, is, a, is a quotative um, 
participle. We don't have any exact equivalent in English. That literally means saying, but here it means, but, but knows it by, it implies investigating. By investigating to whom are that knowledge and ignorance, by awareness, but knows oneself, who is the first to rise by by investigating to whom is that knowledge and ignorance? To whom is that knowledge and ignorance? It's only to ego. So the, the, the self to whom knowledge and ignorance exist is only ego. So when he said that knowledge but knows the self, that is the first, uh, uh, or that knows oneself who is the first, oneself there means ego. So tanne aribum arive means the, the knowledge that knows ego. The knowledge that knows ego implies the knowledge that knows the reality of ego, but knows what ego actually is. Um, it's like saying the, 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 the knowledge that, know, that knows um, the, or the awareness that knows the snake. What is the, if you know the snake, if you know what the snake actually is, you know it is not a snake, it is just a rope. Likewise, if we know uh, what we actually are, if we know our own reality, we will know that this ego to whom knowledge and ignorance appear it is, is, is non-existent, that what actually exists is only ourself. That is the reality of ego, just like the reality of the illusory snake is a rope, the reality of this unreal ego is only our own real nature, the pure awareness I am. So only that knowledge that knows itself, ourself, is the real knowledge. Or, or, but there, as I say, knowledge means awareness. So what Bhagavan is explaining here, but real awareness, when he says that awareness alone is awareness, what he implies is that awareness alone is the real awareness or real knowledge. In other words, knowing ourself alone is real knowledge or real awareness. Knowing other things is ignorance, as he goes on to say in, um, in the next verse. Um, but let's not jump a gun. We can talk about that next time. So um, here, as in the previous verse, as I said in the previous verse, he says, um, if one sees within the mind this, uh, what that one thing is, that is the one thing but on which dyads and triads depend, namely ego, if one sees within the mind what that one thing is, in other words, if one sees the reality of ego, they will slip off. The dyads and triads will slip off. In, the dyads includes the knowledge and ignorance. Why will they slip off? Because ego doesn't actually exist. We seem to be ego only so long as we're looking outwards towards things other than ourselves. When we look back within to see who am I, as Bhagavan says in verse 25, Tedinal Otumpidicum, it's sought, it takes flight. That is, if ego tries to see what it actually is, if it tries to seek the reality of itself, it will it will subside and dissolve back into its source because there's no such thing as ego at all. It's just like the, 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 the rope seems to be a snake only so long as we don't look at it carefully enough. If we look at the rope carefully, if we look at the snake carefully enough, what will we see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. Likewise with ego. So long as we're looking away from ego at other things, we this ego seems to exist and seems to give us so much trouble. But if we turn our attention back to ourselves to see what is this ego? Who am I? 
ego will uh, take, as Bhagavan says, it will take flight. That means it will subside and dissolve back into its source because it has no, it, it doesn't actually exist. It's a mere semi-existence and it seems to exist only so long as we don't look at it. Other things, all phenomena, seem to exist only when we attend to them. They are they're all objects. Objects seem to exist when we attend to them. The subject, namely ego, seems to exist when we don't attend to it. If we attend to it, it takes flight, it subsides and disappears. So, for the same reason in this uh, verse, when we know the reality of ego, in other words, when we investigate ourselves, to whom is this knowledge and ignorance? When we investigate, uh, look within to see who we actually, who is this I who is aware of this knowledge and ignorance, um, <clears throat> this, this I, namely ego, will subside and dissolve back into its source, and the, the pure awareness that will then remain, that alone is real awareness. This is the implication of this verse. So as I said, the importance of these verses, 10, 11, 12, and 13, is Bhagavan is emphasizing that real awareness is only awareness of our own, of ourself. In other words, the awareness I am, that alone is real awareness. Awareness of anything other than ourself is ignorance. But because this, this important distinction is not recognized by most people, if you listen to most people nowadays who talk, who, who give lectures on Advaita, particularly these, um, worst of all of these uh, so-called neo-Advaitins, who say, oh, you're just awareness, everything is awareness, so there's no ego, and so you're nothing to worry about, or uh, all you need to do is to see, but there's no ego, and but all is awareness, and all your problems are solved. Uh, were it so easy, it would be very nice, but it's not so easy. We cannot get rid of ego just by saying, oh, there's no ego. We cannot know real awareness by just saying, oh, there's only awareness, everything is awareness. That is not, that is not true Advaita. Um, but even many of the more traditional Advaitins, they get confused, they, they, they don't understand clearly the distinction between the pure awareness and awareness of other things. You will often hear them talking about uh, it's pure awareness is the sakshi, it's aware of everything else. That which is aware of everything else is, is, the, is the sakshi chaitanya. And they take sakshi chaitanya to be um, uh, uh, suddha chaitanya, pure awareness. What they fail to understand is that we, when the word sakshi is used in scripture, this is an important clarification Bhagavan made. Bhagavan said the term sakshi is used in two senses, so we need to understand from the context the sense in which it's being used. When sakshi is referring to that which knows other things, that sakshi is only ego. So that is the awareness that knows other things. So what they call Sakshi Chaitanya is actually only ego. But the word Sakshi is also applied to Brahman. So Brahman is said to be Sarva Shakti, uh, Sakshi, the, the witness of all, or Jiva Sakshi, the witness of, of Jiva. What does that mean? As Bhagavan said, in the deep in that when when Brahman is referred to as Sakshi, their Sakshi doesn't mean the knower. It means Sakshi there means sanity. 
That is, it's in the presence of Brahman, but everything appears. Not in the view of Brahman, but only in the presence of Brahman. In the presence of Brahman and in the view of ego, everything appears. So the, the, the witness in the sense of the knower is only ego. The witness in the sense of the presence in which everything, everything appears and disappears, that is Brahman. But that doesn't mean that Brahman is aware of all those things, because if Brahman was aware of all those things, then it would be ignorant, because it would be knowing itself as something other than what it actually is. That is, all these things are nothing but Brahman, because the one Brahman alone is what actually exists. So if Brahman saw itself as all these many things, it would be seeing itself as something other than what it is. Then Brahman would be in ignorance, which is absurd. Obviously, there can be, Brahman can never be ignorant. Ignorance is only for ego. So it's only in the view of ego that all other things exist. In the, in the, Brahman is Suddha Chaitanya, pure, pure awareness, awareness that is aware of nothing other than itself. That is what Bhagavan is talking about here when he says, Tanne Ariyam Arive Arivu. The awareness that is aware of 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 itself or of oneself about is alone the real awareness or awareness that is aware aware of the reality of ourself. We can take it in that way, just to clarify. Because because he says to whom are that knowledge and ignorance? Obviously, that knowledge and ignorance are not. Uh, it's not uh, the pure awareness that knows that knowledge and ignorance. It's only ego. Um, so, and as I say, in the next verse, Bhagavan goes on to clarify, um, he makes this very clear, and he begins the next verse saying, I won't go into it in detail now, but just as a, just a bit, uh, because it's an important connection with this verse, in the next verse he begins, Arivu Urum Tanne, Ariyadu, Ayale, Arivudu, Ariyame, that is, not knowing oneself, who knows? Knowing other things is ignorance. Uh, Andri Arivo, besides, is it knowledge? In, in other words, knowing anything other than ourselves is not real knowledge, it is ignorance. Um, <clears throat> oh, and there's one more thing to say about this verse 10. In the Kali Vemba version, the link words that Bhagavan added. Um, before the first word, which is ariyame, meaning the ignorance of things other than ourself, he added uh, a relative clause, irupol mandam, which means, which is dense like darkness. Um, that is, uh, ignorance of things other than ourself, it, it is dense, well, any, ignor any ignorance appears dense like darkness. Knowledge it seems to be light. When we come to know something, we've been enlightened. Ah, oh, I now I know it. Previously, I didn't know it. So, knowledge, ignorance always seems to be like darkness. When we don't know something, it's as dense as darkness. We are not ignorant of it; is as dense as darkness. But when we come to know it, ah, then we know. Ah, previously I was ignorant of it. Previously, I was my ignorance of it was as dense as darkness. So that's the significance of this. Um, of the link where Bhagavan adds at the beginning of the verse, and at the end of the uh, verse, he adds what just one word connected with this, which is arm. Arm means is. So instead of tanne uh, arivu, sorry, tanne ariyum arive arivu, it becomes tanne ariyum arive arivu arm. 
Arm means is. If arm is omitted, it's implied there. So in the in the main Uladu Napadu, arm is not there, but it's clearly implied there. So he just made it explicit here. So the these um in some verses, what Bhagavan says in the link word, in in the in the uh, the additional words he added in the Kalibemba, sometimes they're very, very significant, sometimes they're less significant. So these um, here, they don't have any great degree of um, significance, but it's interesting to know what, what Bhagavan added there. Um, so I think I've, I've said all, but... Um, well, I, I've, I've explained the, the basics about this verse. If anyone has any other questions about it or about anything else. Thank you, Michael. Um, and in this regard, GVK Guru Ashokoi verse 98 comes to my mind, you know, regarding the witness that you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, this is one place where Bhagavan said very explicitly, but our real nature is is not the witness okay in verse 98 of guru Kobai, what bhagavan says is since another thing that is moving or unmoving does not appear except by one wandering as this body as i in other words it's only when we rise as ego and wander about as this body as i but other things um seem to exist uh, so we except when we rise as ego, no other thing seems to exist. Um, and because of the non-existence of external phenomena, that implies the, in the, the view of our real nature, the ayal vishayas, that is the external phenomena, which, are, well, all phenomena are external, um, but that ayal means uh, alien, that something other than ourselves. Um, which uh, which seem to be superior or inferior. That is, we we can evaluate about external things. Some things are, are superior things, some things are inferior. Or it can also mean um, uh, para or para can mean superior, inferior. It can mean far or near, earlier or later, cause or effect. It can be interpreted in various ways. But it implies all pa it implies pairs of opposites. Um, so all these, are, they appear only in the view of ego, not in the view of our real nature. So they appear only when we rise as ego and therefore wander about as I am this body. And they, and they don't actually exist. They, they seem to exist, but don't actually exist. So since such is the case, Saying that Atman, Atman here is referring to ourselves as we actually are, in other words, our real nature, Atma Swarupa, saying that Atman is the actual witness is incorrect. Um, so Bhagavan is, is uh, so what he means, the term he uses here, he uses a Tamil word, not the Sanskrit word Sakshi, but um, he uses the Tamil word uh, Kari, which means uh, the same as the Sanskrit word uh, Sakshi. Um, but he says, uh, he says, Indra Kari. Indra in this context means actual, um, the, the actual witness. That is, it is, in, it's, though Brahman is metaphorically referred to as witness, it doesn't mean that it's actual witness in the sense of the knower. 
Brahman is the witness in the sense that it is the presence in which everything happens, but it is not the actual witness in the sense of the knower. The, the actual witness, that which knows all other things, is only ego, because all other things seem to exist only in the view of ego. That's why he says in verse 26 of Ulugnabdu, for example, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Why? Because ego, everything exists only in the view of ego. Without ego, nothing else can seem to exist. Ego itself is everything. That is, everything derives its semi-existence from ego, because it exists only in the view of ego. Therefore, investigating what it is, what it is, idu here means, um, it means uh, ego. Investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. Why? Because if we investigate what this ego is, ego will cease to exist, and everything else will cease to exist along with it. Thank you, Michael. Right. And there is a, um, a question uh, regarding um, Suttarivu uh, right. from Vidya. Um, so he's asking, so this knowledge of objects, thoughts, by ego, is what Bhagavan defines as Suttarivu? Exactly. Suttarivu. Suttu means, um, means pointing out or showing. So the knowledge, the, the awareness that is aware of things other than itself, that is what Bhagavan calls Suttarivu. And the, so the pure awareness, the Suddha Chaitanya, is what he calls Suttatraribhu, the, the, the awareness that is devoid of pointing out or devoid of showing anything, the awareness that doesn't show anything but just is, that is aware of itself just as being and doesn't um, display any other thing, display or show or point out any other thing, doesn't point may towards ask, anything. May, may I ask a question? Yes, yes, certainly. Uh, and this is, I'm taking a risk here. So if you, all of you decide that I'm a bit of an idiot, it's okay. <laughs> but we're all idiots, I have this, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have this recurring dream, and I, I think it's uh, almost a universal dream, different contexts, different images, and so forth. In, I think in all humanity. <clears throat> but I'm in some sort of military unit. This, this is just stay with me for a second. Or I'm in a barrack somewhere and I'm lying down and I suddenly realize I don't know where my clothes are. I don't know where anything is. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and nobody's trying to help me. And uh, it's just a very strange, uh, let's say anxious, not fearful, but anxious. But it's an ongoing thing. And once in a blue moon, I have it. And I think, shoot, I'm going to remember that. And as I come out of that, I'm thinking about things that I'm learning here. And I thank you all very much for that. And I think at some point, if I were to just simply sit down and say, uh -uh, this is the dream of my ego, and it is non-existent, um, and there would be an awakening, I would awaken. Uh, but there's still, this is what I wanted to talk to you about. And I think this is what we're talking about here. But there's still that fear that, Okay, my body's still there. I mean, I know what you're thinking. No, it's not there because it's the ego and all that stuff. But there's still that that sort of that sneaky suspicion that, okay, fine, we've got this guy in his pajamas sitting in the middle of a barracks pretending that it doesn't really exist. <laughs> anyway, I'd love you to react to that if you would. Well, if 
if in your dream you supposing in your dream you decide it's a dream you are then dreaming but you are in a dream and you're aware that it's a dream but it's still a dream even now we can think about it we can we can reflect over our present condition and we can decide this is all a dream but the dream doesn't disperse just because that is just a thought that occurs in the dreaming mind this is a dream but it still seems to be real to, that is it's important to understand why do dreams always seem dream, real so long as we're dreaming and cease to seem real as soon as we wake up there's a simple reason for this what is actually real is only ourself since in a dream we take a dream body to be ourself but when when that that ourself that's talking about is not robert it's the universal self that's the difference yes. see i what, think it's what, still what, i'm still thinking in terms of robert okay uh, no, you no. know robert awakening yes robert awakens but, robert no longer exists as an ego robert disappears into the self i think i'm beginning to understand okay but there's a, okay since you've raised that there's another clarification here robert is not ego robert is the name of a person ego is that i which mistakes itself to be that person so the i that is aware of itself as i am robert that is ego robert is not ego and earlier you you said my ego there's no such thing as my ego because ego is the that is my is a, is the genitive form or the possessive form of the first person pronoun i so it's like saying my eye are there two eyes one eye but owns another eye no there's only one eye so it the it is you ego can say my robert but robert cannot say my ego it's, that's one important thing to understand but yes when i yes you're correct in in, in uh, the clarification you sought when i said we alone are real i mean what we actually are alone is real but when we rise as ego we mix what what we actually are is the is that pure awareness i am the fundamental awareness i am that's our real nature when we rise as ego that we're still aware i am but that i am becomes mixed and conflated with a person so instead of being aware of ourselves as just i am we're aware of ourselves as i am robert i am michael i am whoever but robert or michael is the name given to a body because we take that body to be ourselves we, we we identify ourselves but yes i am this body called robert i am this body called michael so it, as i was explained because what is actually real is only i am that is our own reality that is what alone is real michael when you when i talk like this to my friends yes. about this i get this look this glazed look <laughs> eyes eyeballs roll and they think that's very nice i remember seeing about a year ago a movie where there's a guy i think it was the, the series arkansas or something like that and this guy was being shot by uh, one of the cartels and as he's just about to be shot he said wait 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 it's just a dream anyway and then the, the scene goes dark and you hear this gunshot going off 
that's the world. The world looks upon us as sort of like that idiot that just said, this is all a dream. It's not real. And boom, he's dead. His brain's blown out. That's what we sound like. That's what I sound like, at least. Yes. But, Maybe you're clear, much clearer than I am, but I sound yeah. like that when I'm talking to my <laughs> but, friends. But that's why it's in a, in a dream. If you know it's a dream, you don't have to go telling everyone in the dream that it's a dream. If you're really convinced it's a dream, there's no need to tell anyone. So we are having this talk among ourselves because the reason we are discussing this, we don't go and discuss these things with other people, but because we are all here to try and understand Bhagavan's teachings, we are all talking about these things. And it's better not to talk to others. That is, Bhagavan never gave any teachings to anyone of his own accord. He, When people asked him questions or people requested him to explain things, he would, he would answer the question or give the explanation required. So we, we should adopt the same attitude. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have the enthusiasm to inform this to others, because as you say, they'll just think we're mad. And in a dream, what does it matter? Supposing everyone in your dream decides you're mad. It doesn't matter It's because it's only a dream. But while you're dreaming, it seems to matter. If everyone takes your, thinks you're mad and locks you up in a lunatic asylum, you're, you're, going, to have a, you're going to be suffering there, even though it's all actually a dream. Um, but anyway, I was explaining why the dream always seems to be real. Because what is actually real is only I, I am, the pure I. Since that pure I is now mixed and conflated with this body, so we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, I am Robert, I am Michael, I am whoever. This, if this body is I, this body must be real because I am real. So we, we superimpose our own reality on this body. The body seems to be real. And since the body is a small part of this vast universe in which we seem to be living, the whole universe seems to be real. So, so long as we are dreaming, the dream always seems to be real. Yes, we may, we may think in the dream, oh, this is all a dream, but it, the dream nevertheless still seems very real. Um, uh, but as soon as we wake up, we leave that dream body and our identifications get switched from that dream body to this dream body. So now this body seems to be I, because that dream body no longer seems to be I, it no longer seems to be real. So as soon as we wake up from a dream, we're able to recognize, oh, it was just a dream. It was all just a mental fabrication. But so long as we were dreaming, it seemed just as real as this, our present state is. So, it, so even if you think, now we've been studying Bhagavan's teachings, most of us here for at least a few years, some of us for many years. So we, this idea that this is all a dream, we may be firmly convinced of this, but however convinced we are, it doesn't detract from the seeming reality of this state. So, um, whatever we experience in dream, while we're experiencing it, seems very, it seems very real. So if we, uh, if we are lost, if we don't know where our clothes are, if, we, if nobody is helping us, we feel that distress, because it all seems very real to us. 
and merely thinking it's a dream. It may console us to some extent, but merely thinking it's a dream doesn't solve the problem. The problem is solved only when we wake up from a dream. Knowing a dream is a dream from within the dream, that, that so-called knowledge that it's a dream is just a thought. It's just another one among the many thoughts we have in the dream is the thought this is all a dream. But the dream doesn't thereby cease to exist. The dream will cease to exist only if we turn our attention back to ourselves. To whom does all this appear? Often in dream, because in, now our identification with this, with this present body is very strong. So when we try to investigate ourselves now, it doesn't bring this dream to an end. But in, in the dreams we have at night, our, I, the, the strength of our identification is generally much less. So if we turn our attention back to ourselves in a dream, what usually happens is we, we wake up. But that's not the real awakening, because we're just waking from one dream into another dream. So it's not, that's not the, the solution. Thank it's, you, Mike. it's quite nice to do that in a dream, to turn our attention back to ourselves, because that, that helps us to understand clearly the truth of what Bhagavan is telling us. And the efficacy of this is our self-attentiveness. Yes, it's not the final efficacy just to wake up from a, an ordinary... We, what we need to wake up from is not just from dream, but from the sleep in which this dream takes place. The sleep in which this, this present dream is taking place, in, in which all dreams are taking place, is the dream of self-ignorance. What is called self-ignorance, as I said earlier, is not actually ignorance, it's the false awareness I am this body. So that false awareness, I am this body, that is ego. So ego is itself the sleep of self-forgetfulness. So we can wake up from this sleep of self-forgetfulness only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. And we can know ourselves as we actually are only by turning our attention back within to know to whom are all this knowledge and ignorance, as Bhagavan says in this verse. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Um, Bruce, Bruce, you want to go out and ask your question, please? Uh, okay. I wrote it down. Two questions. Um, the first question, does leaving, I, it, it's, uh, what I'm focusing on is the, the choice of words that you're, you're using for Bhagavan which is the leaving does leaving mean dropping off and does this mean leaving i who is the first is real knowledge um sorry in which context uh, was that is that in the verse where he says leaving knowledge ignorance doesn't exist yes no, exactly they're, they're leaving the literal meaning is leaving but it it it's used in the sense of without that is that ad, adverbial participle leaving is often used in the sense of without so it doesn't literally mean leaving it means without this that that's a, that's why I said it means yeah. more dropping off, like 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 in the sense of of letting it go, like yeah, it, letting it, the con letting knowledge go, letting ignorance go. 
yes, yes, yes. But it that is not the we we can let go of knowledge and ignorance only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. So we're in the first two sentences of this verse when he says when he uses the word vittu, which means which literally means leaving, we should understand it in, simply in the sense of without. Without knowledge, there's no ignorance. Without ignorance, there's no knowledge. Okay, so then to complete it, the the thought, uh, the I who is first, yes, which is in the phrasing, yeah, uh, the one who thinks this or that, yes. Before this knowing of this or that is yes. being. Is being, yes, exactly. That is what we actually are. That being yeah. alone is the real knowledge, the real awareness. That pure being is itself pure <laughs> awareness. Okay. Be, as Bhagavan says in verse 26 of, of Upadeshundia, knowing... Uh, uh, knowing one's sorry being oneself alone is knowing oneself because our very being is itself the pure awareness the awareness of ourself as we actually are that being doesn't have an i in a sense that being is is the as Bhagavan says in verse 21, that is that being is verse 21 of Upadeshundia, that is, that being is always the true import of the word I. Right. So that exactly. is the real I. That is <laughs> I, that is yeah. I in its pure condition. Right. Okay. Ego Thanks. is the adjunct conflated I. Yes. So it's the same I, but not two eyes, but, but, but that same one eye in its pure condition. That is the pure awareness. That is what we actually are. When it is mixed and completed with adjuncts, that is ego. And it's only in the view of that ego that all these other things seem to exist, all these dyads and triads. Thank you, Michael. Right. Um, going to the, um, the next question from um, Sandy. Um, I have strange, bad dreams in my sleep. It bothers me even after I wake up. Any suggestions how to handle this is appreciated. Um, yes, sometimes when we have a bad dream, it can the the unpleasant feeling created by that dream can linger even after we wake up. The only way of dealing with this is to um, I mean, if that unpleasant feeling is lingering, okay, it, 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 it will pass in time, but just the most we can do is just remember it's all a dream. And not only is that a dream, this is also a dream. This is as unreal as that. So what is real in this dream is only I. So we, that's what we need to investigate. Who am I? What is this I? Thank you, Michael. Um, then um, just going to go to a question. Um, the question I really wish is to stay anonymous. Um, about ego is a phantom and takes flight upon investigation. About that statement. Yes. Um, when you focus 100% on it, 
it vanishes. Mm. Then if we focus on other things, which are mere imaginations of the phantom, why don't these other things disappear? Because this is what Bhagavan talks about in verse 25 of Upadesh, of Uludhanapadu. That is, ego is a formless phantom. It is formless because it's got no form of its own. It's a phantom, or a more correct translation actually of that word, pay, is an evil spirit. It's a, a phantom or evil spirit because it has no substance of its own. Its substance, that means its existence and its awareness, it borrows from Satchit, that is from I am. And it borrows its form from a body. It is neither the body, nor is it Satchit, as he said in the previous verse, verse 24. So it is neither, it neither has a form, nor does it have substance, but it is a, a mixture of the two. So it has no real existence of its own. It depends upon, it borrows its existence from Satchit, it borrows its form from a body. So the nature of this ego, it rises, stands and flourishes by attending to things other than itself. That is what Bhagavan implies when he says, uh, Urupatri Undam, that is grasping form, it comes into existence. Urupatri Nikkam, grasping form, it stands. Urupatri Undu Mika Ongam, Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Uruvittu urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. So the very nature of ego is to constantly grasp form. And so long as it's grasping form, it gives seeming reality to those forms. That is, those forms don't actually exist independent of ego. So it's by the ego's attention, its outward going attention, that all these forms seem to exist. So ego's attention on anything other than itself nourishes both itself and those other things. Whereas, since ego doesn't actually exist, if it turns its attention back on itself, it will subside and disappear. So we seem to be ego only when we don't look at ourselves. So, so long as we're looking at other things, we are nourishing this, this illusion that we are ego. And we are also, and the nature of ego to, is to always be aware of things other than us itself. So by nourishing ourselves, we are nourishing everything else. But if instead of attending to those other things and thereby nourishing ourselves from those other things, if we turn our attention back to ourselves to see who am I, this ego cannot stand without grasping form. So when it, instead of grasping form, when it tries to grasp itself, it begins to subside and to dissolve back into itself. It, it is like the, um, the snake, sorry, the rope seems to be a snake so long as we don't look at it carefully enough. If we look at it carefully enough, we'll see, oh, it's just a rope, so it never was a snake. So sometimes when uh, when people people ask Bhagavan, why does all this appear? He said, because of avichara. He is not saying that avichara is the cause, because if if because for whom is the avichara? Avichara means the non-investigation. In other words, not attending to ourselves. It's what is also called pramada. That means negligence, implies self negligence, implying self negligence. So that can that pram, pramada or avichara cannot be the cause 
for our coming into existence because the avichara is only for ego. So ego cannot be caused by something that exists only in its view. So there's no cause for rising of ego. Uh, but so long as we are uh, attending to anything other than ourselves, in other words, so long as we are not attending to ourselves, we are thereby sustaining the appearance of ego and therefore the appearance of everything else. So the solution, since the problem is avichara, the solution is vichara. Since the problem is not attending to ourselves, the solution is attending to ourselves. As simple as that. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent will ego subside. Why don't we attend to ourselves more? Because we still have desires and attachments. We still are attached to things other than ourselves because we wrongly believe that we derive happiness from these things. So our mind is nat naturally goes wherever it thinks happiness lies. So since we wrongly, even if we understand on the, on the surface of our mind, on a conceptual level, that happiness doesn't lie outside, deep down we are still convinced but our happiness and misery is caused by external things. So our mind is going, is constantly going outwards. In order to give up this liking to go outwards and cultivate the liking to go within, the liking to go outwards is what is called vishayavasanas. The liking to go back within is what is called satvasana. So in order to cultivate the satvasana, and to weaken the Vishayavasanas and eventually get rid of them entirely, the only means is patient and persistent practice. However many times our attention goes outwards, we need to try to bring it back within to attend to ourselves. It's only by, by persistently trying to turn our attention back within, but the, the love to attend to ourselves and to subside back within will increase. And to the extent we have love to subside back within, to that extent will we be able to go deep within. And the deeper we go within, the more ego dissolves. And when we have sufficient love, we will merge back, we will go in deep enough and thereby merge back into our source. So as Bhagavan said, bhakti is the mother of jnana, that bhakti or love is the key in this path. Why this? Bhagavan has said, uh, this path is extremely easy, more than any other path, more than anything else we may do to try and solve, uh, to gain happiness. The easiest means is this simple practice of self-investigation. But though it is the easiest, it seems difficult because of our reluctance to let go of other things. So it's all this seems difficult because of our lack of love. So love is the key to success in this path. And how can we cultivate love? Only by love alone will breed love. So it's only by by building upon, we already have some little liking to follow this path of Bhagavan, so we wouldn't be here talking about it. We wouldn't, we'd be away watching football or cricket or something else. Um, but we, we, because we are, in, we have sufficient curiosity to know what we actually are, we are here talking about this subject. So we already have some liking to look within. We can build on that, we can cultivate that liking only by uh, pursuing that liking, by uh, uh, practicing more and more to turn within. This is the only way. This is why Bhagavan insisted, there's no shortcut. Practice is absolutely essential. What practice? 
the practice of attending to and thereby being what we actually are. Thank you, Michael. Um, so there is a question uh, from um, Advaita Bodha Deepika, the lamp of non-dual knowledge. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm going to read, um, the question pertains to cessation or the term cessation of activities. Right. Um, so I'll just, um, uh, uh, the questioner sent me uh, the appropriate verses and I'm going to read verse 36 and 37. It's sort of a Q&A uh, first. And the, the disciple is asking, what are the sadhanas or prerequisites for this process? And the reply I, from... Can, can I say something? Yeah. Um, sadhana, the basic meaning of sadhana is the means. So though someone has said their prerequisite, it actually it means what is the means to, um, to achieve this. Right. Thank you. So let me read that. Got it in here. Um, the knowers say that the sadhanas consist of an ability to discern the real from the unreal, no desire for pleasures here or hereafter, then cessation of activities, karma, and a keen desire to be liberated. Not qualified with all these four qualities, however hard one may try, one cannot succeed in inquiry. Therefore, this fourfold sadhana is a sine qua non for inquiry. And then in Verse 39 to 44, he goes on to give a bit more explanation. He uses the word uprati for cessation of activities. Um, and um, this, the scripture says cessation of activities, uprati, can be the outcome of the eightfold yoga. So, can be the outcome. So, and then there's a few other instances here, but basically the point is it seems to say that that is needed for inquiry. And could you explain that? The very fact that we're here talking about this subject means we, 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 we may not have perfect discrimination. We may not have perfect vairagya. We may not have perfect mumukshutva, um, but we must have to some extent or we wouldn't be interested in this subject at all. So the very fact that we are trying to know who am I, or we're curious at least to understand Bhagavan's teachings about this subject means we're already, we're already We've already begun to discern the unreality of all these phenomena. We even begin, we're even beginning to question the reality of this I, but in whose view all these phenomena exist. So we've already got at least a, a slight degree of nitya, of, of uh, it's usually said nitya, nitya vastuvivaka between the, the, the permanent and the impermanent, or maybe said satya, satya, vastuvivaka. Satya, satya means uh, what, what is real and what is unreal. It amounts to the same thing, because whatever is real has to be permanent. Whatever is unreal is impermanent. Um, so we, we already are beginning to have some degree. What we have to do is to build on that. To build on that, we don't need to go back to the four yogas or to any other practice. Bhagavan has said, of all the means, the best of all 
is this self-investigation. Um, in Upadesha India, he talks about the path of uh, bhakti. The path of bhakti begins with nishkarmiya karma. And nishkarmiya karma is of three kinds. Uh, uh, nishkarmiya uh, actions of the body, that is called puja. The nishkarmiya actions of the speech are called japa. And the nishkarmiya um, actions of the mind are called dhyana, meditation. Nishkarmiya means done without desire. But Bhagavan clarified earlier on that in order to do action without desire, he didn't say this explicitly, but he implied it in verse 3. In verse 3 he said, Kartuno kakam nishkarmiya karmam. That is, action done without desire for the love of God, done for the love of or done for God. Done for God implies done for the love of God. So Bhagavan doesn't take the the path of nishkarmiya karma to be separate from a path of bhakti. That is, the preliminary stages of a path of bhakti are nishkarmiya karma. We do actions by mind, speech, by body, speech, and mind as an out of love for God. We do it for the love of God. Um, so he 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 says in in this order from the actions of body the actions of speech the action of mind in this order each one is more efficacious than the previous one efficacious means a, an effective means of purifying the mind uh, and then in verse 8 after talking about each of these in turn he says rather than meditating rather than anya baba Anya means what is other. So Anya Baba in this context means meditating on something other than ourselves. In other words, it implies meditating on God as if he were other than ourselves. Rather than that, the Ananya Baba, the meditation on what is not other than ourselves, in other words, meditation on ourselves alone, with the understanding he is I, that is anatinam utamum. So Bhagavan says explicitly there, but of all the means. The best of all is this path of is this uh, is this meditation on nothing other than ourself. In other words, self-investigation, meditation on ourself alone. When he says it's the best among all, he means in the context he means it's the most purifying of all. So it's the most efficacious of all the means to purify the mind. That's one thing. It also means in the out of all the practices of bhakti. The best practice of bhakti is meditating on ourselves alone. It also means by extension of all the spiritual practices we can do, this is the best of all. This is the most efficacious. So um, sometimes when people ask, Bhagavan, don't I have to do other sadhanas to prepare myself? Bhagavan sometimes clarified, every little effort we make in this path is worth that is, every moment of effort we make in this path is worth countless years of effort made in other paths. That is, this turning our attention back within, this is going, this is the direct path. It's going direct back to our source, back to where we want to where we, we where we want to go is where we have come from. We want to return to our source. This is the direct path back to our source, turning our attention back within. We've risen from within and we need to subside back within. So this is no other path, no other means, no other sadhana. It, it, 
that I'm not saying Bhagavan doesn't say our sadhanas are, are useless or they're ineffective. They have some degree of efficacy, but they all pale into insignificance compared to the great efficacy of this path. That is why Bhagavan was constantly emphasizing the need to turn within. Why he was constantly encouraging people to try and turn within. When people were when people showed that they were unwilling to follow this path or unwilling even to understand this path, then he would come down to their level. He would say, yes, doing japa is good, doing jhana is good, doing puja is good. Yes, it's all good. It's all good. No doubt. It, they're small steps on the road towards this. But this is the ultimate path, and this is the most effective path. And we don't have to wait to come to this path, because even the, the most... Um, even the, that is one thing that we're all aware of, from the greatest saint to the worst sinner, from the highest god to the lowest insect, one thing all sentient beings are aware of is I am. That So God is always shining in our heart as I am. Why should we waste our time attending to other things when he has made himself available so near and so dear to us, that, that is, I am is not only near, nearer than anything else, it's also dearer than anything else. So God has made himself so intimately available to us, why should we waste our time doing puja or japa or dhyana or pranayama or any of all these other practices? They're all good, but none of them are anywhere near as effective as this path. So, once we, if we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, we will lose interest in these other means. We have probably been through all these other means. If we hadn't been through all these things, we probably wouldn't have come to this path. But now we've come to Bhagavan, let us follow the path that he has shown. Bhagavan says in the 12th paragraph of Nana, God and Guru are in truth not different. Just like uh, what is what is caught in the jaws of a tiger cannot escape. Um, so those who have been caught in the glance of the Guru's grace will surely be saved by him and will never be forsaken. He gives us a great assurance there. But then he adds an important proviso. Eninum Guru Katya Baripadi Tavaradu Nadakabendam. Nevertheless, it is necessary to follow without fail the path shown by Guru. So what is the path shown by our Guru Bhagavan? It is this path of self-investigation. So we, we cannot, we, we, Bhagavan will certainly save us, but he needs a little bit of cooperation from our side, our part. Why does he need? Because he will never force himself upon us. He will never kill this ego until we are willing to surrender it to him. He will never take charge of us until we are willing to hand over charge of ourselves to him. So he needs our cooperation because he is infinite love. He will never force himself on us. So he's doing everything to save us, but he requires our cooperation. How can we cooperate with him? By subsiding back within. How can we subside back within? By investigating ourselves. That's why in the very next sentence, in the, the first sentence of the 13th paragraph, he, he defines what it is to surrender ourselves to God. Apma chintane tavira, vera chintane kalamba vidaku, satram idum kodamal, apmanishta paranai irupade, tannai isanaku alipadam. What that means is, 
being firmly established as oneself, giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than thought of oneself, in other words, other than self-attentiveness, alone is giving oneself to God. So if we want to give ourselves, if we want to surrender ourselves to Bhagavan, we need to hold on to self-attentiveness. Holding on to self-attentiveness means holding on to him in our heart, because he's ever shining in our heart as I. Abhanahamahum, as he says in that verse 8 of Upadesha Undiya. So the, the, if we truly want to follow Bhagavan's path, if we truly are seeking his grace for the annihilation of ego, we have to cooperate by we have to yield ourselves to his grace by trying our best to turn within. So all these other sadhanas, for someone who who aspires to follow the path shown by Bhagavan, all other sadhanas become redundant. Right. Um, so in that phrase, cessation of karmas, um I take it that it, he's referring to karmic karmas, you know, to try to cut no, it down. No, I don't know what I don't know the context, but we are not seeking just the cessation of karmic karmas. We are see, see, seeking the cessation of all karma, all action, all mm. every chitta vritti, every um, movement of the mind. But how to? This is what they say in yoga. Yoga's chitta vritti nirodha. Yoga is to is to curb or to stop the the mental activity, but how to do so? Bhagavan says, if you try to stop thinking, that is futile, because the very effort to stop thinking is itself a thought. Bhagavan has, has taught us the, the short, a beautiful shortcut. That is, the very nature of ego is to be active. As ego, we cannot... The, the core teaching of Bhagavan, of Bhagavan and Advaita is summa iru, just be. We can't, that, that implies be without action, don't do anything, just be. We can't just be so long as we rise as ego, because the very nature of ego is doing. Ego is constantly doing, going out with grasping thing, this thing, that thing. So the only, if we want to just be, if we want to cease action of all kinds, action of mind, speech, and body, the only way is ego must subside. Without the subsidence of ego, action of mind, speech, and body will not cease. So how to bring about the subsidence of ego? Only by turning our attention within. To the extent to which we turn our attention within, ego subsides. To the extent to which ego subsides, everything else, all its activities will also subside. So. In, this is why Bhagavan asked, told us, what's it matter however many thoughts arise? That means, what's it matter however much, however active the mind is? Doesn't matter. As and when any thought, any anything appears, as and when anything appears, we need to investigate ourselves, the one to whom it appears. We need to turn our attention back to ourselves to see to whom does all this appear? In other words, we need to see ourselves. So we need to, we shouldn't be concerned about thoughts. We shouldn't be concerned about activities. Let them go on or let them not go on. It's no concern of ours. Our only concern should be to know who am I. If we know who am I, then the thoughts and the activities will automatically stop because they can't continue without ego, because ego is the basis of them all. So the, the aim of yoga is to stop all the 
uh, chitavrittis. But if you try to stop the chitavrittis, as Bhagavan says, you end up in layer. That's no use. Right. But right. if you want to permanently bring about the cessation of ego, uh, I mean, the cessation of all activities, of all mental activity, all chitavrittis, the only way is to bring about the subsidence of ego. And you can bring about the subsidence of ego only by turning back within and sinking back into the heart. So this is, uh, so Bhagwan's teaching here is so clear and um, and um, different than, than how the previous Vedantic scriptures used to put it. You know, by saying that these four are the prerequisites, they're actually sort of discouraging sadhakas, right? And now they have to work mm -hmm. on Oh, I need to succeed in these four before I even think about practicing Bhagwan's method. Yeah. You know, so on the other hand, I remember um, you recording Sadhuam's comment in one of the paramount importance of self-attention series. It was a commentary where Swami was giving a commentary to verse 16 of Upadesa Undir. In which um, I clearly remember this phrase, um, mind focusing on its own light of awareness is the primary clause and leaving aside external phenomena is a secondary clause. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. Th that that is, really that, stuck me there. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. If we attend to ourselves, automatically we'll be drawing our attention from other things. Right. But if we try to withdraw our attention from other things, we'll end up in layer. That's why Bhagavan often said, Yoga teaches chitta vritti nirodaha, that is impractical. The practical way is to investigate who am I. Forget about the chitta vrittis. Don't bother about the chitta vrittis. Let them go on or let them not go on. He's asked in the sixth paragraph of Nanao, however many thoughts arise, so what? As and when any thought appears, we need to investigate to whom it appears. That means we need to investigate ourselves, the one to whom it appears. In other words, we need to turn our attention back towards ourselves. That is the that is the efficacious, the effective means to bring about the cessation of all thoughts. If you're worrying about how to stop the thoughts, if you're trying explicitly to stop the thoughts. Your, your very effort to stop the thoughts is itself a thought. So in yoga, they adopt tricks like uh, pranayama. Pranayama is a trick to bring about the, by, by restraining the breath, you restrain the, the mental activity. So that's a trick. But the trouble with that, it, will, you, it leads you to layer, not to nasa. I, Leia and Nasa are the two types of dissolution of mind, as Bhagavan says in verse 13 of Upadesha India. But what is subsided in Leia will rise again. What is subsided in Nasa will never rise again. So in the next verse, he said, verse 14 of Upadesha India, the mind which will attain quiescence or which subsides by restraining the breath, will die only when it's a when it is sent on the orvari. Orvari means the path of investigation. So it needs to that implies self-investigation. It needs to turn back within. That is the only way to bring about the destruction of the mind. Otherwise, if we if we practice yoga, we will just end up in layer eventually. Um, so this this self-investigation is the only means to achieve 
the goal of, the goal of yoga is to end the chitta vrittis. But what's the use of ending the chitta vrittis uh, on a temporary basis? Bhagavan told the story of a yogi who was uh, meditating on the banks of the Ganga and could go into Nivikalpa Samadhi for 300 years. But when he woke up from Nivikalpa Samadhi after 300 years, the first thing he did was he angrily asked, where's my water? Before going into Samadhi, he had asked for water. After 300 years, when he woke up again, again the thought of water came to him. So Bhagavan said, even the most superficial thought in his mind was not destroyed. So what's the use of staying in the Vikalpa Samadhi for 300 years if the problems come back again as soon as you come out of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, we can't remain forever in Nirvikalpa Samadhi because the nature of ego is to rise. Every time it subsides, sooner or later it will rise again. So we want a means to bring about the permanent cessation of the mind. So the aim is not manolaya, but manonasa. And manonasa can be brought about only by self-investigation. Right. Bhagavan Thank said about that yogi, when even the most superficial thought in his mind was not destroyed, what about all the vasanas? The, the, if the, yeah. Yeah, the, the vasanas are not at all, every night when we go to sleep, when we wake up, the same vasanas come back. We don't, the vasanas don't get weaker just because we sleep. Even if we're in a coma for 10 years, we come back with the same vasanas. So the, the uh, being in Manolaya is not a solution. It's a nice rest. We all like to sleep, but it's not a it's not a permanent solution. The permanent solution, the real solution, is only Manonasa. And Manonasa can be brought about only by self-investigation. Why? Because but, but there Manonasa means destruction of mind. But what the mind essentially is, as Bhagavan says in verse 18 of Rupadeshundia, is nothing but ego, the I. Because all other thoughts, uh, the root of all other thoughts is ego, because all other thoughts exist only in the view of ego. So Mananasa means annihilation of ego. And what is this ego? This ego is a false awareness of ourself. It's awareness of ourself as I am this body, I am this person, I am Michael, I am Kumar, I am whoever. Um, so long as that ego is there, all the other things will be there. So the only uh, we need to get rid of this ego. Since ego is a false awareness of ourself, we can get rid of it only by correct awareness of ourself. So how can we get correct awareness of ourself if we don't investigate ourselves? We have to look at ourselves to see what we actually are. If you see a snake on the path and you're afraid of it and you're told, no, it's not actually a snake, it's a rope, how can you get rid of that fear? You need, merely because someone's told you it's a, a, a rope, you're not going to be convinced until you actually see for yourself that it is a rope. How to see that it is a rope? You need to look at it carefully. So to see what ego actually is, we need to look at it carefully. When we look at it carefully enough, we will see that what seemed to be ego is not at all ego. It is just pure awareness. So no such thing as just like no such thing as a snake ever ever existed there. It was only a rope. No such thing as ego has ever existed. But in order to see that, we need to see ourselves. So there is there cannot be any other means other than the self-investigation. Right. The goal is to know ourselves, the means is to investigate ourselves, as simple as that. Thank you, Michael. The next question. 
why are we preconditioned to avoid suffering much more than seeking happiness? Why are we driven by fear of nightmares more than seeking happiness? Um, <laughs> I, I think we're seeking both. I think we're seeking happiness and we, we want our happiness to be free of suffering. That's what Bhagavan says in the first clause of um, the first sentence of Nana. Oh, Sakala Jiva Gulum, Dukkamendri. Yes. A lack of misery. Yes. Dukkamendri, Sukumai Irika Virambhavadalam. Since all living beings desire to be happy without misery. So, so long as there's misery, we're not happy. So we, of course, we want to be free of misery, but we equally want to be happy. Why do we want to be free of misery? because the misery is a state of non-happiness so we want to be free of misery in order to be happy happiness is our goal bhagavan said when you have a headache why do you want to be free of the headache why is why did the headache cause you suffering because the headache is unnatural because it's not a, your natural condition you you feel uncomfortable so long as you're you've got a headache and when the headache is removed, then you feel relief. So our present condition as ego is not our natural condition. So we, as ego, we are always dissatisfied because our real nature is infinite happiness. When we rise as ego, we limit ourselves as this small person. So we no longer know our infinite nature. So we, we separate ourselves or seemingly separate ourselves from the infinite happiness that we actually are by rising as ego. So we are constantly seeking happiness, but nothing can satisfy us other than infinite happiness. So uh, however much wealth we accumulate, however much, um, however much uh, uh, learning, knowledge we accumulate, however much sensual pleasures we accumulate, however much power we, we have, whatever we may seek, nothing will satisfy us. The only thing that will satisfy us is the infinite happiness that we actually are. And for that, oneself, knowing oneself is necessary. As Bhagavan says in, uh, in that first sentence of Nana, he concludes it by saying, in order to attain that happiness, which is one's own nature, and which one experiences daily in sleep, which is devoid of mind, oneself, knowing oneself is necessary. For that, Nana innam jnana vicharame mukhya sadhanam. That is the invest the awareness investigation. Who am I? Alone is the principal means. Yeah. It can't get clearer than that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, uh. But even that people will find but some people say, but Bhagavan said it's the principal means, so that means there are also other means. We need to understand what Bhagavan means there by the principal means. If all, if there was only one river, suppose the name of Ganga was the only river that flowed into the ocean, how can other rivers reach the ocean? They have to flow into the Ganga. So you can say the Ganga is the principal, the, the principal path. It, the other, the other rivers also have a role to play because they discharge river water into the Ganga, but they cannot discharge water direct into the ocean. So like that, all the other practices, they're all good. 
because they all ultimately lead us to this path. But why should we go back to those? Now we've come to this path. Now we've got a guru who has set us on this direct path. Why should we seek to go back to those other, to go back, swim up the tributary in order to join the main river again? Futile. Let us, let us surrender ourselves to uh, this uh, Ramana Ganga, which will sweep us to the ocean. And how we surrender ourselves to it is by clinging to him in our heart. Because that Ramana Ganga is what is always shining in our heart as I. Ramana and the, the flow of his grace is always shining in our heart as I. So we have to throw ourselves into that river of grace that is ever shining in our heart, ever flowing in our heart, and it will sweep us away to the ocean of infinite happiness, free of all misery. Right. Thank you, Michael. Um, so Vidya sort of restates what we just discussed. So the crux of practice is mind attending to its own source of light. Exactly. The letting go happens naturally as a byproduct. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, how, how can we reduce the thought activity? I think we discussed that, but do you want to add anything to it, no? uh, um, Michael? Well, the, the, so long as we rise as ego, we are caught up in thought activity. The very nature of ego is to be caught in thought activity. And that thought activity is all extroversion. It's all outward. All thoughts are directed outwards. So we need to direct our thought or attention back within. That is the way to be. But to the extent to which we are, turn our attention inwards, to that extent will ego subside. To the extent that ego subsides, all, its, all the other activities will also subside. So don't worry about mental activity. Let it go on or let it not go on. It's no concern of ours. Our only concern should be to attend to ourselves. If we attend to ourselves, then automatically that will subside. Right. Oh, very good. Um, so, uh, Stephen, did you? Uh, um, I know you had a bunch of comments here, not really questions. Do you want to summarize that? I'm truly moved by uh, today's session. It's appropriate to uh, reset my year. And then I thought about it. It's really not resetting my year. It's resetting today such that the rest of my life remains an inquiry and constant self-attention to get to where I am right now. Yes, but let's not worry about the rest of our life. We, we cannot attend to ourselves in the future. We can attend to ourselves now. If we attend to ourselves now, and at, at every now we attend to ourselves, the future is taken care of. If we are thinking, in the future I must attend to myself, our attention is going away from ourselves to the future. So Thank we, you. Can, we must be in the present. It's this, it's this moment is the pressure. Is the, the only opportunity Bhagavan has given us now is to attend to ourselves now. So let's know the future. Will, if we take care of the present, the future will take care of itself. And thank you for upgrading my language to match what I really feel. Right. And it's be here now. Right. Thank you. Right. All thanks to Bhagavan. He's pointed out all these things. Right. <laughs> I still remember you're, you're just the radio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you, Michael. Last question. Um, is uh, from Ram. Is is watching breath akin to self-attention, or are they different? No, they're different. 
attending to anything other than ourself is is different to attending to ourself. That is, but two. Now our present experience is ego. We are the subject. Everything we know is objects. The breath, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, the vasanas. All are objects. The whole world is objects. Our aim is not to attend to any object. To attend to the subject. To whom are all the? To whom did this breath appear? To whom does all this appear? To whom means not asking the question to whom, turning our attention back towards ourselves, the one to whom all these things appear. Bhagavan doesn't say ask who to whom or ask who am I. He says investigate to whom, investigate who am I. Investigate means we have to turn our attention back to look at ourselves, to attend to ourselves. Very good. Thank you, Michael. That um Kumar, Kumar yes. can I yeah. ask you a question that came up? Mm, can I ask ahead. a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Michael, uh yeah, uh, today's session was like a, a beautiful ocean, and I found uh one uh like a pearl that stuck out to me. Uh, and that is you said um the reason that I, this uh, person is not disappearing is we have invested in the belief a lot, right? A, a huge amount. Yes. That was uh, awesome. So my thing is, it's not only me that I invested, it's also all the people around me. It's the whole, whole society is, has also invested on me. The, the people around that, you. That so person. The, the yes. society around you, they are not the problem. The problem is you're liking to go outwards. You're, 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 you're Vasana, that inclination to attend to the world, to, to be concerned about the society and everything. So the, the world is not a problem. The world uh. is as it is. We are the problem. We are the problem and we are the solution. The problem, everything lies within us. Our liking to go outwards lies within us. That is the problem. But how to get rid of that liking to go outwards and to cultivate the liking to go inwards, that can only be done within. This is, Bhagavan's path is a wholly inward path. The whole problem identified by Bhagavan is within us. We, we ourselves are the problem. No, we are also the solution. Yeah, we're perfect. also the solution. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So, perfect. So long, Thank as you, we, so, long as, so long as we think the world is distracting us, the world is causing problems, we are still allowing our attention to go outwards and we are projecting our own problems out on the world. Right. Right. The, the problem yeah, is not the world. It's because we like to attend to the world, that's a problem. So I am imagining that other people have invested in me, invested in my person, the the person Shoham, right? Yes, that is the person Shoham has a certain prarabdha. So whatever expectations others may have of Shoham, Shoham cannot do can, cannot do more or less than what is already destined. So mm. let, 
let Shohan live his life. If he has, if he has family, if he has parents or um, or wife or children, all these things. Yes, this person Shohan has obligations, obviously to all these people. But are you Shohan? That's the problem. The problem is your is our taking ourselves to be. I am this person, and then we identify with all the problems of this person, all the obligations of this person. It's Bhagavan's path is such a simple path. It is dealing with the very root of the problem. The root okay. of the problem is our identification with this person. Got it, Michael. So just getting just getting distracted from the main problem is the problem. Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> we like to be distracted from the main problem because the nature of ego is to go outwards. Ego, ego cannot survive without going outwards, without grasping things other than itself. So it always finds every opportunity to every excuse to uh, go outwards. Thank you, Michael. That is Thank why you. this this bhakti, this love, is so important. We must be, in order to to in, go deep in this path of self investigation, we need to surrender ourselves. So we need to be willing to surrender ourselves. And in order to be willing to surrender ourselves, we need to have all-consuming love to subside back within and to remain as we actually are. Swatma Bhakti. Yep. Also called uh, Satpasana. <laughs> you know, it's the, how can logic finally give you a feeling? It's, it's kind of some kind of magic that you do, Michael. Start with logic and finally get a loving feeling. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Because Bhagavan's logic, uh, logic that Bhagavan has taught us, is all pointing in the right direction. Bhagavan hasn't taught us any logic to know about the world. He's taught us logic to know about ourselves. So all the, the logic of Bhagavan's teaching is all pointing us back at ourselves. And since we ourselves are infinite happiness, it is logic that will lead to the infinite joy of our own being. Amen. <laughs> so the brain and the heart merge in Bhagavan's path. Yes, yes. <laughs> Metapho awesome. met yeah. Metaphorically. <laughs> right. Uh, so next, uh, last question, Sandy, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I was at a shopping center a few days back and I saw this lady can you hear, yeah, can hear me? yes yes i saw this lady she was so huge so big i think she was tired of walking so she was sitting on a chair you know i felt so i don't know how my feel what my feeling was that this thought came to me that if the creator is so full of love and compassion how do you explain this lady you know she must be going through a lot of physical and mental pain because of his uh, because of her you know whatever so this is my question you know where is the compassion and love of the creator um well there are various levels this can be when you ask that you're assuming that god is the creator that is the first thing to be questioned. But uh, I'll first address your question. That is, 
Well, the truth, according to Bhagavan, God is not the creator. The creator of all this is ego. Um, but the God is the infinite ocean of compassion. But God's aim is not to make uh, make our life in this world pleasant, because the very nature of embodied existence is suffering. Even if that lady had a young, slim, healthy body, she would still be undergoing suffering in one form or another. There is no happiness, no, no, that no real happiness does not lie in this bodily life. It does not lie in the outward going mind. True happiness is our own real nature. With, uh, so it can be obtained only by turning within. So whatever happens is the, what, whatever we experience in this life is our prarabdha. Prarabdha means it is the fruit of our past actions, but not just a, a random selection of the fruit of our past actions. That is, we have done so many actions in the past, the fruits of which we haven't yet experienced. So all those fruit are stored in what is called sanchitta. So uh, God, for each life, God or Guru or Bhagavan selects which fruit will be most conducive to our spiritual development. So we may seem to have a life of suffering. We may have an unhealthy body, a body that is too large for one reason or other. There may be medical reasons, or it may be because we indulge too much in eating, or it may be a combination of factors. We don't know. We don't know. But anyway, it may be a to have such a large, unhealthy body. Or it may be there are so many other uh, types of suffering we undergo in this life. So all these difficulties are given to us because they are what is most conducive to our spiritual development. We may not be able to recognize that now, but that is the aim of all the, everything that we experience. It's all intended to, 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 um, to maximize the speed with which we return to our source. So um, we cannot understand why God did this particular difficulty to this person, this difficulty to another person. But the very nature of God, God is, firstly, he's all-knowing. So nothing can happen without his knowledge. He's all-loving. Sorry, he's all-powerful, so nothing can happen without his consent. And most importantly of all, he's all-loving. Why is he all-loving? Because he's our own self. He loves us as himself. He doesn't see us as other than himself. So since he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, nothing can happen in this world, in this world that, is not, that is unknown to him, that he has not permitted, or that is not good for all concerned. So we have we are seeing we have a very narrow view. We just see a particular person undergoing a particular suffering, or we experience that suffering ourselves, and we think, "Oh, this is bad." But whatever suffering we are put through is actually for our long-term good, because God is not going to cheat us by just giving us making our life in this world relatively pleasant. That would be cheating us. He wants to give us, he wants to restore us to our own uh, real nature, our re re real state, which is infinite happiness. So but 
if he just gives us uh, pleasures in this world and removes our difficulties in this world, he's cheating us, because that's not where real happiness lies. Real happiness lies only within. So whatever happens to us, according to each one of us, is according to our destiny, and the destiny is tailor-made to suit our present level of spiritual development. So the soul aim is of of all these of, of everything we undergo is to give us the willingness to finally come to this path to turn within and to eventually sub dissolve back into the source from which we've risen. That is the only solution. Supposing some doctor was able to find some treatment for that lady and she was able to reduce her weight and become slim again. That would be one problem solved, but her life would be full of other problems. We all have problems in our life. Who has? Can anyone honestly say they have a life free of problems? No, obviously, nobody in this world, whether however rich they are, however learned they are, however whatever nice family they have, whatever whatever comforts and conveniences or anything, we are still dissatisfied because nothing less than infinite happiness can satisfy us. Because infinite happiness is our real nature. So the, our, the very, our very existence as ego is suffering. That suffering takes different forms. It takes different degrees of intensity. But suffering is our lot, so long as we uh, persist in rising as ego. The solution is to turn back within and subside back into our heart. That is the sole aim of God, to bring us to that point where we're willing to subside back within, we're willing to surrender ourselves completely. Thank you very much, Michael. Right. Thank you.